welcome again to our Wednesday Bible study. And in this video, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 15. This is the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, you might be thinking, didn't we look at the Red Sea crossing last week? We did. But here's something very interesting that I don't know, but I guess we don't always really kind of focus on this. There's two different chapters back to back that talk about the crossing of the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 14 uh, that we looked at last week, what we see is we see kind of the story about it. Well, in Exodus chapter 15, I guess you might even say that the natural response to God working like that is to worship. And here in Exodus 15, we see this is a song. So it's all laid out in the sense of, of poetry. Now, this poetry is going to be a little bit different. You know, it's not like roses, red, violets, or blue. It's not the type of poetry that we might be uh, used to hearing. But it will be uh, biblical poetry. It'll be Hebrew poetry. And if you want to take a look after watching this video, I'm going to include a Bible project video that uh, talks about that poetry and kind of some of the differences there. And it uses Exodus 14 and 15 as uh, some of the examples that they talk about in that video. Uh, but let's look at Exodus chapter 15 before we uh, do that together. Now, what we are going to do is we're going to look at different sections, uh, just kind of a few verses at a time. And what I would say that uh, would, would be a lot of help to you is after you get done with this class and, and looking at all the different sections, uh, just take some time and, and read the first 19 verses all together in, in one setting. Uh, that will give you a better idea of how all of this pieces together. And if you want to, you can also just pause the video right now and read it all before, you, uh, before we look at the different sections. You're welcome to do that. But we're just going to take a look at it a few verses at a time. So Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The chariots of Pharaoh and his army he has thrown into the sea, and his chosen officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They went down to the bottom like a stone. So you start to see kind of this, these statements of poetry. You know, before in Exodus chapter 14, kind of that summary statement uh, was like this in verse 29. Uh, but the Israelites walked on dry ground in the middle of the sea, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. But here in chapter 15, we see kind of this, this poetic statement. Uh, this, you might call it a little bit more flowery language. And there's also a few things that, that are mentioned here. So let's look at these uh, verses. In verse 1, we see that it's not just Moses, but it's also the Israelites, that they're all singing this song to the Lord. This is what happens whenever we see God working like this in history. It should be natural for us to worship. And in this case, it was natural for them to worship in song. And this song is all about praising God. And yes, it talks about what he's done. But more importantly than that, it's about praising him. Verse 2, we find out a wonderful statement. And several of these things might be very similar to what we read about in the book of Psalms. The Lord is my strength. He is my song. You know, sometimes we might even sing about that, that the Lord is my strength, that the Lord is my song. But then notice the second uh, part of verse two. He has become my salvation. 
you know, the idea of the Lord being salvation is so important in this chapter. And, and I can't help but whenever I think about the Red Sea crossing, that it's very similar to what happens to us in baptism. Just like how they had to pass through the waters and whenever they came out, they, they were free compared to the, the slavery before. That's how it is with us in the waters of baptism. Before we go through the waters of baptism, we are enslaved. Now, it doesn't always feel like that, and we might think that we're not enslaved, but we are a slave to sin. But after we pass through the waters, in the case of baptism, we go under the water and come back up, up out of the water. But after that, we are free. Things are new. Things are different. And that's where we see this, this statement about salvation, the statement about deliverance. Uh, all of that is wrapped up in to our God. He is our savior. He is our strength. He is our salvation. He's our deliverance. And we also see another thing in verse three about uh, what the Lord has been doing this whole time. Now it's specifically stated, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Now we're gonna get into a little bit more about the name of the Lord and how great the name of the Lord is. But right here we see the Lord is a warrior. That's kind of an interesting image, you know, especially since we, we tend to focus on the fact that, you know, God is love and he most certainly is. But because God is love, you know, that also means that he's got not only strong emotions toward us, he loves us, but you know, he also has strong emotions uh, toward the people that are against us. You know, because, uh, for example, because I love my kids, um, I do not love the things that hurt my kids. You know, of course, I don't like that. In fact, we might even use such strong language to say that, you know, I hate things that hurt my kids because I love my kids. And in a very similar way, that's kind of how it is with God, that God, yes, he is love, but he is also a warrior. He's not afraid to take action against those people who are against his or uh, to put it kind of another way. Uh, he's not opposed to, to taking action against those who are trying to do things a different way than him. Uh, but he has called us to follow him. And the Lord is a warrior and he will fight on our behalf. So this is what we start to see in verses one through five. And I know I kind of, it it, uh, it bothers me sometimes to not mention some of these these things because I think they're just, they're, they're wonderful images. But, you know, we, we see this image about, um, this poetic image of what God has done in verse 15 that, you know, they went down to the bottom like a stone. We, we see these, these statements, these images, you know, if you've ever thrown a stone into water, you know, you just see that it just sinks and then it's just out of sight. And that in many ways is what God has done to really kind of all of the Egyptians. Uh, he has just, you know, thrown them into the sea. They, they sank. They, they are no more there. They're out of sight. And they are no longer the problem that they were uh, before. Let's keep reading now. Verses six through eight. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the abundance of your majesty, you have overthrown those who rise up against you. You set forth your wrath and consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood upright like a heap, and the deep waters were solidified in the heart of the sea. Uh, let's pause right here uh, for the first couple of uh, verses there. It's just kind of continuing that on that the Lord is the warrior and, and how he uh, accomplished that, uh, that battle there. But then we see this, this beautiful image of verse 8. By the blast of your nostrils, 
Now, we obviously see that wind is, is connected to the Red Sea crossing, because if you remember the way that Exodus chapter 14, and maybe I should have included some of these verses in the slides. Um, sorry if that would have really helped you and, and you don't have them, but uh, hopefully you have a Bible that you can kind of come back and forth a little bit and, and look at these things. But in the previous chapter, if you look at it in verse uh, 21, so Exodus 14, 21, this is what we read about how the, the water is actually piled up, you know, because we, we get those images, and I mentioned this last week, but we get those images uh, like from the, the, the movie of the Ten Commandments and, you know, other movies and all that Moses just, he raises up his hands and he raises up that staff, of course, and then the waters, they just pile up and you just see them instantly like that. Well, how it states it in the scriptures, though, 1421, Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea and the Lord drove the sea apart by a strong east wind all that night. And he made the sea into dry land and the water was divided. And it does talk later in the next verse about uh, that uh, that wall of water on the right and on the left. But here, whenever it gets into poetry, um, that language that was used in Exodus 14 about how there's a strong east wind that came all that night, and it, and it took time, you know. And I would I would explain it like this: uh, that's how it happened, you know, from a from a physical standpoint, looking at it. Uh, of course, it's a supernatural event. But from a physical standpoint, what you would see if you were to watch it is you would see the strong east wind that comes and it just dries up uh, this to, to where they can walk on dry ground, you know, the, this uh, this Red Sea. But the way that it's stated here in Exodus 15, we see that that God is portrayed as as actively doing this, which, of course, he was. But it says by the blast of your nostrils, the winds, uh, the waters were piled up. You know, that's the type of wind that is described right there. I guess it's the same thing about a strong east wind, isn't it? And then we also find out that the waters were, were stood upright like a heap. And then they were solidified. Uh, some translations might even say that it was, you know, um, congealed. And I don't know, I think about uh, jello whenever I, I uh, hear those images. But we see that it's the same description. And this is how God brought them out. And it, it would have been quite a sight to see. And, and here in Exodus 15, um, you know, 14, we kind of see what God did and how he worked and also how it you know, took some time. It's a little different maybe than the image that we think about. But here in Exodus 15, we see this, this wonderful image, this, this very involved portrayal of what God was doing. Because, I mean, he was doing all of these things. And he, he was very active in this. This is, without a doubt, a supernatural experience. But there's also more even in the upcoming verses. Verses 9 and 10 now. The enemy said, I will chase, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Once again, some more poetic images about God's involvement and what he did. You know, he blew uh, with his breath. We see that God is completely involved in this miracle. And, uh, you know, sometimes people have tried to, they, they look at Exodus 14 and they've tried to explain uh, how the, the Red Sea could be dried up and, and everything from just a natural uh, perspective. And Yes, okay, naturally, you might be able to say that, okay, if you had a strong wind that just kept blowing, you could possibly dry it out. 
But that doesn't change the fact that it happened right at this time and that God really caused all things, these things to happen. Um, yes, it was by uh, the blast of his nostrils. It was that he blew with his breath. He caused this miracle to happen. Even though from a physical perspective, it would have looked like, you know, oh, well, it's just these, these, uh, these natural things that are happening. But God caused all those natural things to happen in a supernatural way. And all of this was to provide deliverance for his children, for this nation that, that he has planned great things for. And then after they are talking about what, what he has done and how he has led them through uh, this, this Red Sea, now this poetry, this song, it turns its attention to God himself. Let's take a look at that. Verses 11 through 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. By your loyal love, you led the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish, anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab, and the inhabitants of Canaan will shake. Do we see evidence of that later? We most certainly do. Do you remember that whenever they go into the land of Canaan, whenever they send out those spies and they talk to, to Rahab, and they, uh, uh, they are having that conversation with her, she knows about their God. She knows about the God of the Hebrews. And she knows about his power. News of what God did here spread to them. So this statement, I think, is so wonderful in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The answer is no one. Yeah, there, there might be other uh, beings that are, are worshipped and people might think that they are God. They are not the same thing as God. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, those, those other beings that, you know, we might say idols, those other beings that are worshipped, uh, they are related to demons. They're, they're not God. They're in no way God. We also find out several times that whenever God sends messengers, um, you know, many times people, they, they try to bow down and, and worship those angels. And they always stop and they say, don't worship me. I'm just a servant. Only worship God. There is no one like God. Um, he, he is just... He is in a field all of his own. So who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Sometimes I think it's important for us to remember that. And I think it's also important for us to remember that whenever we pray to him, too. That we are praying to the creator of everything. You know, we're, we're praying to the one who parted the Red Sea. Who led out this, this nation from the, the land of Egypt into the promised land. And he had great promises uh, for them and, and great plans for them. And they repeatedly were causing problems, but yet God was still working on their behalf. And he still brought about ultimately what he said he was going to bring about. Uh, this is the God that we serve. And they're not done praising God because let's keep reading now. Verses 16 and 17. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people whom you have brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place you have made 
for your residence, O Lord, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. And here in these verses, we see that, you know, this, this fear and dread that's going to fall on them. This is maybe an unfortunate time that I, I, uh, I put these on a different slide. But it's all this one thought, you know, those inhabitants of Canaan, fear and dread will fall on them. And the Lord is going to make his people pass by. And he is going to go to this place that he has plans to bring his people to. And that's exactly what he does. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh came with his chariots and his footmen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea on them. But the Israelites walked on dry land in the middle of the sea. Now they're going back to that event again and just kind of recounting it. Because God is so great. He's brought them through so much. The correct response for them was to worship. And you know, it's not just Moses and the uh, the Israelites themselves um, who are singing. We also see that, that this involves like everybody in this group. Let's look at the next couple of verses. When you look at verses 20 and 21, what you find out is Miriam. You know, she's the, uh, the sibling. Uh, she's the sister of Moses and Aaron. And here we find out that she is going to, to go out with the women and they're all going to have their own song. They're all going to be, be celebrating what God has done for them. Look at this, verses 20 and 21. Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a hand drum in her hand and all the women went after her with hand drums and with dances. Miriam sang in response to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Everybody is so excited. They are celebrating because deliverance has come their way. However, one thing that we find out with this people is even though deliverance came their way, they're still, they're still not out of it all yet. And they still are going to be complaining to God. They still have problems. Well, let's look at some of those problems. The, the first one of those problems uh, shows up at the end of this chapter. So now let's look at verses 22 through 27. With this, we'll, we'll end this chapter together. But we find out that uh, they come across this water, but it's bitter water. Well, I mean, of course, you got to have something to drink. God is going to provide them with something to drink. But, you know, they haven't experienced it yet. To them, this is just another problem. And they, they do complain at this. Verses uh, 22 through the end. Then Moses led Israel to journey away from the Red Sea. They went out to the wilderness of Shur, walked for three days into the wilderness, and found no water. Then they came to Marah, but they were not able to drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. That is why the name was Marah. So the people murmured against Moses, saying, What can we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When Moses threw it into the water, the water became safe to drink. There the Lord made for them a binding ordinance that they... That and there he tested them. He said, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and pay attention to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, I will not bring on you, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. See, God provides. But they still had this problem. Okay, so let's let's look at these things together. In verse 22, uh, it specifically is stated that they walked for three days. 
I don't think it's by accident that it's mentioned that there's three days. You remember that the whole, the original request of Moses was um, uh, about going out um, to a journey for three days. Well, this, this three days after they are taking that uh, amount of time, they're not finding this water. So what are they going to do? Well, they, they do find water, but it's bitter. Uh, that means that they, they can't drink it in, in this case. It, it's uh, not able to, to, you just can't drink it. But then, Whenever Moses asks the Lord about it, then the Lord has him uh, put this tree into the water, and then it becomes water that they can drink from it. And of course, I don't think that we need to be looking for some, you know, natural explanation and say, oh, well, there was some problem with the water and it needed the the something from from the tree in order to make it work. No, this again is one of these miracles that God is doing. He's bringing out these people in a miraculous way, and then also after this time. He starts talking about how they need to obey him. Now, we haven't gotten to the Ten Commandments yet or all the other commandments just yet. I mean, God has asked certain things and he already has commandments, but they haven't been you know, written down into what we know as you know, the law of Moses. That's going to come in a few chapters later. But right here, he's already talking about the need for them to obey the Lord, their God. And he makes this wonderful promise. But in connection with this promise, it's also important to recognize that the way that it's stated, it seems that the reverse would also be true because this promise of verse 26 is that if they do follow him and if they do everything and pay all this attention to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, I will not bring on you for I, the Lord, am your healer. Well, he says he talks about all those diseases. I mean, he's obviously talking about the 10 plagues that he just brought. He brought on all those diseases on the Egyptians. And he gives them a promise that if they follow his commandments, they're not going to have to be bothered by those diseases. But, you know, because of that, it almost kind of implies that the reverse would be true, too. That if they don't follow his commands, then perhaps they might have to face those diseases, the same types of diseases that the Egyptians had to face as well. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because the Lord is their healer. He is the one who heals. He is the one who has given life originally, and he is the one who sustains life, and he is the one who still is providing for them. And you would think by now that this is enough for them to recognize God is going to provide for them no matter what they possibly need. But they still have their questions. They still have their doubts. They still have their complaints. But God is going to work with them, and he's still going to be bringing them through. And whenever we look at this, that happens here at this Mara, this place of, of bitterness. Um, I forgot to make mention of this, but do you remember that it was part of the Passover uh, festival that they would have bitter herbs? And, and the term about being bitter has shown up several times in this. I mean, think about it. They were slaves. Uh, that's a pretty bitter form of life. Whenever they were to celebrate the Passover festival, they had these bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness that was in the land uh, of Egypt. But now whenever they get out of this land of bitterness, you think everything's going to be going great, but then they get into another land of bitterness, this bitter water. What is going to happen? How is God going to provide for them? But this shows us how God can turn the bitter things into wonderful things. That he can take these things that are bad and turn them into something good if we just follow him. And that's the call that he gave for them. And I actually want to read what 
I want to end with kind of this, this study note here that I thought it was a wonderful way of putting it. It's in the Net Bible study notes here at the, the end in verse 27 there. It says, the lesson is clear. God uses adversity to test his people's loyalty. The response to adversity must be prayer to God, for he can turn the bitter into the sweet, the bad into the good, and the prospect of death into life. That is our God. And what he wants is for us to follow him. Who is like the Lord? There is no one. Let's make sure that we serve him. Let's make sure that we praise him whenever he brings us through difficulties and the bitter times in our life. Remember that you can check out the Bible Project video on how to read the Bible. It would be the art of biblical poetry or just called how to read the Bible poetry. You can find the link below in the description of this video. And the, uh, the video that the Bible Project has put out is one that will kind of help us make a little bit more sense of this chapter and why there's uh, the, the same type of story in, in Exodus 14 and 15, but then it'll also help you uh, with poetry throughout the rest of the Bible too. So hopefully you'll enjoy that and be able to, uh, to use that great resource.